welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. We have Ian Gray joining us today. Um, We're talking Applied Materials, which is a company a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, anyone that's in used any sort of computing device before has interacted with, but they just don't know about it yet. And Ryan's going to introduce what they are. But first, um, I got to ask everyone, I think we already discussed this before. Have either of you guys heard of this company before? Ian? I don't think I'd really heard of this one, maybe in some uh, Twitter threads or stuff like that, but I hadn't ever, I didn't really know what they did. All right, Ryan. No, I I did not. And the industry in general is something I haven't looked at. So you gave us quite the homework assignment for this week. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we got to, what do they call it? Eat the veggies. This is good work because eventually maybe 10 years from now, we'll understand all these companies uh, properly. Uh, Just some baby steps here. And I'll let Ryan introduce and talk about what Applied Materials does. But first we have to talk about our sponsor today. And that is Common Stock, a social network for smart money investors. So Common Stock is a platform where you can message and long form and write posts, link to posts, all that good stuff, but more fundamental analysis based. It's more of a less chaotic form of how Twitter works. And you can also follow people similar to how Twitter works, but you can see how big someone's followers assets are and you can connect your brokerage accounts to that without actually having to have a brokerage account. So like you can connect your Robinhood, your Schwab, whatever it is, all those connected to that, see all your watch list. And then for people that follow you, you can see how much in a dollar amount your follower assets are. So it's very fun in that regard. And it's a lot more, it's a lot better for actually reading about a company, reading some analyst analysis. Uh, For example, I put something out on there on Match Group. It's not as formal as say a written research report, but you can do a lot more than say the 280 characters limited on Twitter. And we all know how chaotic that can be. So it's really a Bloomberg terminal for Main Street. It's really focused on individual investors analysis without getting into the crazy you know, data you get from Bloomberg. It's for someone that wants, you know, even if it's just your hobby uh, and you want to follow, follow some analysts or you know, someone like Ian, he's on there a lot writing about stuff. Um, Ian, what, what did you were doing something with Common Stock? What was that the other day? Yeah, I was writing a little bit about Wix, trying to ask some questions. I'd say one of the big, best things about Common Stock is every time I post on there, I know that I'm going to get some thoughtful questions and response. And so it has some kind of longer form dialogue back and forth in a way that I don't typically get on Twitter. All right. And yeah, the most important thing is that it's trusted and transparent insights where you can see what people own if they want to and all that good stuff. Great analysis over there. I'd recommend you download or go to Common Stock dot com. If you search in Google, it'd be very easy to find. Sign up. It's free. All right, Ryan, do you want to introduce Applied Materials? Probably the hardest part of the show right here is describing what they do. Yeah. So I'll give the one-liner and then I'll try to break it down in 
to maybe a simpler definition, but applied materials provides manufacturing equipment, services, and software to the semiconductor and display industries. And so the way I understand it is that applied materials is one of the, if not the world's leading material engineering firms and material engineering is basically just the science of creating and modifying materials. I I had to watch a lot of YouTube videos to kind of grasp, to actually grasp what they do. And if you're not familiar with the space, I recommend starting there. Don't start on the 10K because there's going to be a lot of terminology that you're not probably not used to. I'm not used to it. Um, But it's actually really fascinating the way it works. Basically, my understanding is that they are manipulating materials on an atomic level, but at an industrial scale. And so, and they do it through a bunch of different processes and Brett's an engineer. So maybe he can add something here, but uh, what the processes include, uh, they talked about this one a lot, deposition or deposition, uh, removal, modification, and analysis. Um, and I can't really do the process justice in terms of like defining it or explaining it in the right way. So I recommend, like I said, going to YouTube, Um, but on the business side, applied materials sells primarily to chip manufacturers or display companies. So their two largest customers are Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor and applied materials breaks its revenue down into three segments. So there's semiconductor systems, applied global services and display and adjacent markets. And so, like I talked about, the two big ones are pretty much semiconductor and then display and adjacent. Um, and when I say display, think like high tech display screens like TVs or augmented reality or virtual reality screens. Basically they're making uh, the manufacturing equipment to provide to end manufacturers. I, I know I'm, I'm pro- probably kind of going in loops here. Brett, am I missing anything on that? Yeah. I. Th- I mean, there's a lot of details, but I think in general, yeah, it's just the tools for Intel, Samsung, Taiwan Semi, all those manufacturers, the people that are making the displays. It's the tools that allows them to continue on Moore's law and get chips smaller and smaller and smaller and faster and faster and faster, more efficient. Um, I think a key thing for them is that the process quality makes it so, okay, so and important, like you don't have as many errors on these tiny, tiny chips. And they're able to do this with these really complicated chemical processes combined with these tools that they built out over 50 or something years. And there's so many other details about it, but from an investment perspective, that's probably the biggest um, overview without getting to each of the, the products. Cause they have, I believe I was looking at their website. They, I, I didn't count them, but I think they have over a hundred of different products they sell. So obviously we're not going to go through all of them today, but they have a huge diversification of you know, as their name says, applied materials. All right. And as far as history goes, applied materials was founded in Santa Clara, California in 1967 by Michael McNeely and a few others. And they were really one of the pioneers of the microchip industry. They kind of, I guess you could say they were one of the leaders behind the name Silicon Valley. Um, And so they were, they were really, they're very notable, I guess, in that area. And they were initially funded with some seed money from local investors. During the early years of semiconductors, though, the manufacturers would largely build their own equipment. And so applied materials came in and basically changed that where they stepped in as a fabrication system supplier. So they kind of just built a new stakeholder in that value chain. And then uh, it didn't really take long for them to grow 
they IPO'd in 1972, so five years after they were founded. And then by 1975, they were basically a globally a global business at that point. And they were at that point, semiconductors were very cyclical. So they'd go through these big sort of industry recessions. And so there were a few times where it was kind of make or break and they had to fire a lot of employees, but they kind of built back up. Um, and and today, I guess, it, I think it's been a while since there was sort of one of these uh, down yeah, cycles think, in the industry. Uh, 20, 2014 had a major one, but it wasn't as bad as, as in the past. Um, and then today, they're basically the global leader in the term nano manufacturing and they have offices and direct sales teams all over the world um they're a big company as well brett will get into that but uh before he does do you want to talk about uh industry and the landscape yeah so this is i think in general it's it's an industry that people don't know about like we have been talking about but it's called semiconductor equipment and it's fairly you know large uh and it's really based on the capital expenditures and the factory builds out of all the manufacturers. So similar to how um, TSMC kind of took over the manufacturing from the chip designers, back in the day, Applied Materials did the same thing for the chip manufacturers uh, who used to build these things in-house. They did it out of, they, they started doing that themselves and then selling it to them. That's how this industry started to form. Uh, applied Materials Management is expecting $100 billion in wafer fab equipment spending, which is basically, you know, Fabrication or wafer fab is just for the spend from TSMC, Samsung, or whoever. They're expecting $100 billion in spending in 2022, and that will be slightly higher in 2023. Or they didn't give it a number. They said they're optimistic about 2023. Uh, for applied materials to track demand from them, you really should look at the other companies. So you should look at capital expenditures and capital expenditure planning from TSMC, Samsung, Intel, and the other smaller manufacturers of semiconductors. And then their largest, um, sorry, they are the largest semi-cap company by revenue. Um, I think, well, Ryan will get into it in the earnings uh, with the exact numbers there. And then ASML, which people might know, which is in the lithography space, is the largest market cap. Competitors include LAM Research, ASML, KLA Corporation, Tokyo Electron. Now, Tokyo Electron is more their direct competitor, um, but all of these are competitors in kind of the semiconductor equipment market. But there's a big difference between what Applied Materials does, and then there's the lithography, which is uh, what ASML and a few other companies try to get into. That's a whole different thing. So they're kind of competing with ASML, but also kind of not. They're serving their own niches, um, and they aren't and this is kind of the key for maybe doing an analysis of whether they have a competitive advantage. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in the second half. They're not competing too much uh, for bids with these other semiconductor equipment companies with TSMC, Samsung, and Intel. They have a bit of monopoly there as well. Um, Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership? Yep. Gary Dickerson is the CEO and president of Applied Materials. He became president in 2012, CEO in 2013. Prior to Applied Materials, he was the CEO of a company called Varian Semiconductor Equipment Associates, which was bought by Applied Materials in 2011. So I assume that part of that acquisition um, was they they saw Gary and thought that he might be a good um, successor. Um, he's also consistently ranked as one of the top CEOs in the world over the last few years. And he's known for prioritizing innovation and product development in his time at Applied Materials. R&D spend has risen significantly as a proportion of expenses over his time 
over his time at Applied, which kind of goes to show that the commitment to research and development is, is something that they're actually investing in. This is a highly paid executive team. Dickerson got about $35 million in total compensation in 2021, um, with most of that being stock-based compensation. But he's been highly paid over the last couple of years, too. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Now, they've, they've executed, and it's um, I think the company has... Uh, more than 10 bags since he became president in 2012. So, you know, it's <laughs> arguably has been worth it. Um, a couple of the major shareholders are Vanguard and BlackRock um, with institutions as a whole owning over 80% of the company. Insiders own very little of this company, but Dickerson himself owns about $100 million. He has been selling some, and so you'll see some news about that over the last couple of years, but he still owns over $100 million of, uh, of applied material stock. Yeah. And that's with them being public for what, 50 years? I don't have the, I guess the exact number. Yeah. It's about 50 years. Yeah. It'd be tough to have like the founder or something still owning a bunch of stock. It's kind of like one of those really mature companies. I'll hit valuation quickly though. They have a market capitalization of $110 billion and their ticker is AMAT. Now their enterprise value is $107.5 billion. And this comes from subtracting out uh, from the market cap seven, about seven and a half billion in cash and investments, and then adding back about 5.4 billion in long-term debt. Ian will go into the more of the details uh, when he goes over the balance sheet. Now we have enterprise value to operating income, which is just enterprise value divided by trailing operating income. And that is about 13.8. However, since this is fairly capital intensive and there are a lot of working capital things with inventory and stuff like that, that can affect what their cash flow is. I do like to look at operating income and free cash flow. So their enterprise value to free cash flow, which is just enterprise value divided by trailing free cash flow is 18. So slightly higher. Those are probably the two, my two favorite numbers for valuing this company. Although there's a lot you can go into for all the little nitty gritty details. Um, but one note, it is important for a company like this, you as an investor to look at income and cash generation over multiple years. Since like Ryan mentioned, the semiconductor industry has gone into, uh, well, it has been very cyclical in the past. So if you look at their margins, um, I believe, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, back in 2014, margins totally went down a lot. Uh, and that's because demand fell off a cliff. Um, if that occurs again, obviously that can hurt the business, but management knows this and they're hopefully better with you know decades of experience balancing that out now with all their other partners. But overall, what are you guys' thoughts on valuation? I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but um, what do you, how do you, how do you think about valuing this business, Ian? Yeah, I'd say this valuation all comes down to whether the company is cyclical still. And if it's not cyclical, then, and they're going to be able to maintain um, these or similar levels of revenue and free cash flow, um, the valuation looks very attractive here. I think if it's, if it is, kind of follows more of its history and has some ups and downs and um, has some some revenue decline over the next couple of years and the valuation um, is much more complicated. Ryan? I think Ian hit the nail on the head there. It's cheap if the previous growth is a sign of what's ahead um, or if you just take sort of the trailing numbers at face value, but obviously you kind of have to have a gauge on what the end markets look like and whether or not there will be uh, another sort of downward cycle um, because obviously that can affect their ability to generate cash. But uh, I mean, it seems, yeah, I, I 
this actually the valuation kept me pretty interested in studying more because it 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 is not too crazy like some of the companies we've seen lately. Yeah, and I think one thing to note here is that unlike maybe a subscription business or something else, this is equipment manufacturing. And while it is has been a great business in the past, when someone installs, say, or TSMC installs something, it's going to be in there for multiple years and maybe ten years. So it's really reliance on their capital, like their uh, their growth capital expenditures, how much expansion they're doing. And semiconductors have expanded over the last few decades. So I mean, you can maybe expect that to continue. But there is that, you know, if there is a pause in demand or something like that. TSMC, Samsung, and Intel might not be interested in as many applied materials machines. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit the, uh, the, their latest earnings? Yeah, and they. I would also add that they give a big backlog number. So they kind of, what has been agreed for them to deliver, um, but hasn't they haven't yet recognized the revenue from it yet. And so there is sort of a, you can kind of look through and see demand to some extent um, just by looking at that number, but that doesn't take into account all potential future revenue. Um, but it, as for the earnings, they just wrapped up their first quarter, which I hate when companies do this, like every other company was just wrapped up their fourth quarter and uh, applied materials, their fiscal calendar is off. So uh, it's a little frustrating, but in 2021, so I'm, I'm going a quarter ago, applied materials generated $23 billion in revenue for the year of 2021. And that was up 34% versus the year prior. And they also generated just under $5 billion in cash on that revenue base. So it comes out to about a 21% free cash flow margin, which is just for anyone that doesn't know, free cash flow margin is the amount of uh, the amount of money they're generating, the amount of cash they're generating from their sales. So uh, basically their end profits and the profits you get as a shareholder. Um, and then to they have continued to expand their profitability. So margins have grown over the years as well. Gross margins, uh, basically margins have followed the gross margin expansion. So it's been pretty steady on that basis. There's been a pretty constant theme throughout recent earnings reports. Um, and it's basically that they are seeing record demand and demand because that pretty much gets asked. I feel like every conference call was is sort of like a look through on demand. And they've said it's been really, really strong. However, they're having a hard time fulfilling all that demand due to tough supply shortages um, uh, of certain silicon components. So like every other company right now, they're dealing with the supply chain stuff. And so the big question is, how are they going to be able to meet the demand? Um, but going to the first quarter, even with the shortages, uh, applied materials delivered 20% plus top line growth. So it looked it looks like they're doing okay managing um, any, I guess, short-term limitations they might have, but that's something I imagine you're going to hear a lot about if you're reading the conference calls is all the supply stuff, because that seems to be the focus for them right now. But um, that's pretty much all I have for earnings. So Ian, you want to hit balance sheet? Yep. So in my opinion, they have a solid balance sheet. They've got about $5.7 billion in cash, about $5.5 billion in long-term debt. So a net cash position. Um, most of that debt, they're all that debt is in low single digit interest rates. And so fairly low cost debt. And it's only about $240 million in annual interest expense, which to put one number to that, um, we can look at an EBIT to interest expense ratio, which basically just means how much income are they getting before 
interest and tax before they pay interest and in, in taxes divided by um, their interest expense. And they're basically getting 34 times their EBIT to their interest expense. So they could pay their interest 34 times um, with the cash they're generating. And so plenty of space, no need to, no concern about, um, about being able to pay their debt, even if cash flow was to reduce by a significant amount. Um, and they have access to more borrowing if they want it. They've got about um, between a revolver, uh, revolving line of credit and some commercial paper, um, they have access to about three to four billion more if they wanted to um, use it for buybacks or if they wanted to use it for um, for growth capital or if they get, got into a situation where they just needed some more cash. They've got, they have access to it. Yeah, one I, thing, uh, or go ahead, Ryan. As I say, I imagine a lot of, when you hear that it, the, their EBIT to interest expense ratio is 34 times, part of me thinks, well, maybe they should use more leverage to kind of grow, but they're generating enough cash to do it with purely the cash they generate. And this is part, part of me thinks there has to be a level of conservatism in case they do go through another cycle. They don't want a whole bunch of leverage compared to their cash base. Yeah. They've definitely learned from the past. And I, that does bring up a good point that I think we should mention is they do repurchase a lot of stock and that's their general, how they are generally how they want to return cash to shareholders. They have a small dividend, but it's mainly repurchases. And actually last quarter, I believe they repurchased $1.8 billion worth of their stock. So at this current pace, and it can't continue forever because at the current levels, it would it's more than the free cash flow. Uh, maybe free cash flow glows, they'll be able to, to do that, but they can retire about 2% of their shares outstanding. They'll have a bit of a headwind from share dilution. So when you buy back stock, um, I should just explain, your share count goes down and that increases the ownership of the existing shareholders. So in general, if the business stays steady and doesn't totally collapse, um, the value that you own is higher as an existing shareholder if you stay around. Slight one small correction. The last year they generated $5 billion in free cash flow. This year or this first quarter, they generated 2.6. So they they returned about $2 billion to shareholders in the form of repurchases and dividends, but that was less. So they did generate more free cash flow than they returned. So there, there is potentially some sustainability there. Right. They can keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's hit an ad break. It's for you. Credentials to advance, confidence to stand out in your career. At Regent University, you'll join more than 30,000 world changers making a difference in high demand fields. Pursue your bachelor's, master's, or doctorate online or on campus in Virginia Beach. Your degree from top-ranked Regent University is waiting. So is the world you will elevate. Say yes to your purpose and position yourself for a brighter future. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Regent.edu slash learn more. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back. Next up, anecdotal evidence. Um, well, we're not working with their equipment because we're not material science engineers. Uh, but Ian, anything here? No, I don't have anything on this. All right, yes, Ryan. You do. Yes, well, you your do. phone. I mean, the I computer's think. wrong. I was going to say, I, uh, 
I mean, you're probably benefiting from the fruits of their, I'm probably benefiting from the fruits of their labor right now because Taiwan Semi, I believe, supplies the chips to Apple and I have a whole bunch of Apple products and Taiwan Semi's uh, applied materials second largest customer. Yeah, the Taiwan Semi wouldn't be as good at making chips as efficiently as possible if they didn't have applied materials equipment. Uh, but I don't think any of us are going to be buying a etching tool anytime soon. Um, also, it might be a little out of our budget given their pricing power. Uh, but anything else, guys? Anecdotal evidence? Okay, let's move on to future growth opportunities. Ian, what are your thoughts here? This is more of kind of a secular tailwind, I would say, than a, a true future growth opportunity. But I think the world is desiring more redundancies in supply chains to protect from uh, supply chain disruptions that we've seen over the last couple of years. And I think that applies to semiconductors too. And so due to the geopolitical tensions, um, I think that there's a chance for applied materials business to grow as more companies, more of these uh, semiconductor manufacturers decide to um, add more machines in different parts of the world so that they can hopefully keep up with demand better. Um, and I think that may have been some of the boon that they got in 2021, but I expect that that's going to continue into the future as people, um, as some of these companies, whether it's existing companies or even new, new companies decide, you know, we, we really need more manufacturing capability around the world. So we don't get caught in a squeeze if, uh, if some sort of, you know, geopolitical tension or something else arises. Yeah. More conservatism. I think that's management. Applied materials management is probably salivating at that type of stuff. And especially also the investments in um, basically coming out of Asia into the United States, all those capital, all that capital spending of building out the second giant manufacturing base. And in Europe, I guess you include that too, like you were just saying. I mean, that that's just, it's inefficient for the manufacturers, but that's a good thing for applied materials. All right, Ryan, uh, what are your thoughts? What do you got here? Uh, I have the internet of things. I, I, so at first I was thinking like, all right, I'm not going to be able to provide any sort of growth avenue or any sort of expertise uh, to applied materials, but I guess that's not really the point of it. Basically, what do I think is going to drive growth? It's going to be just a sec the secular trend of smart devices or internet connected devices. Uh, and that really is sort of, that that is what drives their demand to begin with. Um, and so it's not very insightful for me to say that, but if if you just think about all the things that are becoming internet connected, whether it's smart TVs, phones, watches, potentially glasses, cars, uh, and I'm sure I'm missing tons, that really is their growth avenue. As long as that trend persists, they're going to be fine. Um, the only way that there would be a problem is if there's some sort of reversion uh, and I just, I don't see that happening, but I guess the better, the longer lasting that some of the chips are, or like the, the longer that the cycles are, maybe there's a potential like slip in demand. Am I thinking about that? Right? No, I think you are. Yeah. You are thinking about that. Right. Um, potentially, but there's also, the, I think it also ties into just the economy as a whole. So if consumers are not able to spend up on the new iPhone, whatever, new electric vehicle, big smart TV, I don't, I don't know, you name it. Um, and they're saying, okay, we're going to keep our old phone or, or whatever, old laptop for longer and longer. Because if things were going well right now, 
uh, we'd buy a new laptop or we're just going to save it because we don't necessarily need one that could maybe impact their demand in the short run. But I think over the longer term, it's kind of hard to see as long as, unless you think the world is going to shit, which maybe it could, you know, that's always a possibility. It's harder to see how applied materials won't have increased demand. Yeah. I have a hard time balancing like the increase in smart devices with the longer upgrade cycles, like what's going to drive, which is going to have a heavier impact so far. It seems like the increase in devices, but it's weird uh, how everything just comes back down to the American consumer or the Western and Chinese consumer kind (laughs) of like as long as we're spending, then uh, everything's fine. But um, all right, I'll move into mine. uh, And that is kind of maybe a, a niche one, but one of their fastest growing within what Ryan was saying, and that is the automotive industry. So if you believe EVs are the future and everything, it looks like it's going to be like that unless commodity shortage really hurt us in the near term. Um, that is going to raise demand for semiconductor output because an electric vehicle has significantly more semiconductor needs than an ICE vehicle, which is internal combustion engine, uh, traditional car. So that's going to raise the demand. If then if these companies, uh, Texas Instruments, I guess, focuses on that, even the, the leading edge ones, Samsung, Intel, whoever, um, if they're focusing more on that and they have more demand from that from all these manufacturers as all the cars go to the to electric vehicles in the future, that's going to be hopefully raising demand for applied materials, products, and services. Again, though, or Ian, Ryan, Ryan, you have something? I would, yeah, and I'm kind of just adding to your point, which is right now increasing, even though demand for EVs is probably already really good, increasing gas prices could... Uh, could potentially be yeah. a further propellant of demand. Yeah, that's true. And the whole thing is just getting as many, like there's just a limit on EV uh, part or not EV commodity supplies and stuff like that, nickel, whatever, copper. So it's just, can they get all those supplies and make that? Um, and then and then hopefully uh, the the entire automobile industry will switch to EVs. Ian, you have something to add there? Nope, nothing to add there. Okay. All right. You have the mute. I kind of see the mute button and then I I know whether you might have something to say, but one thing I want to add though, is Intel's recent investments in or announced recent investments in US and Europe. I think it's mainly United States. So I think, and I should probably have looked this up, but I think it's 20 billion in Ohio and 20 billion in Arizona. And there might be another 20 billion in there somewhere, but those are investments that are going to happen over the next maybe five years or something like that. And again, what many what machines are going to be in those factories? It's going to be applied materials. So I think th- those announcements um, are probably a good sign. And TSMC is trying to offshore more to Japan and the United States. Again, those type of geopolitical things that Ian mentioned um, are already materializing. They're not just in theory. All right, highlights and lowlights. Ian, what do you like and dislike about this business? I think the thing I like the most is what you guys just hit on, which is the secular tailwinds. And one of the just to further emphasize that point, one of the things they called out in the conference call is that today, nine of the 10 most valuable companies in the world either design or build chips. So that just, I think, goes to show how important chips are in today's economy and how probably much more growth there will be as more and more companies, um, you need chips for every every part of everyday life. And so um, creating the equipment that helps build the semiconductors for those chips, I think is, is a clear... Um, there's going to be some clear winners in this space. I also like uh, strong free cash flow generation, which I think creates a clear path to returns. A low light for me is, and this isn't a low light for the company, but it's just a low light for myself is I don't know what I don't know. There's a lot here that I feel like I'm starting to get a grasp on this business, but there's just a lot that 
that I don't know exactly what's going to happen or I never know what's going to happen, but don't know if, if X happens, what does that mean for applied materials? And there's a lot of questions like that, that I'm just not sure exactly. And so, um, that's a low light for me. I think there's a little bit of a, more of a learning curve here than some of the other companies. But like I said, that's not a knock on the business at all. Yeah. I think those are big three, all three of our biggest low lights is this business is very, very complicated. Yeah. I, my low light, I have another one, but basically Ian's low light, uh, can, I'm going to use that one as well. Um, my highlights though, they are very shareholder friendly company with their returns to shareholders right now. Um, and by returns, I mean cash that they're giving back in the form of repurchases or dividends, not stock returns. But another one is so far, it seems like demand is, uh, really strong as far as the, eye can see, like if there is a downward cycle coming, you can't really, it would, I think, surprise pretty much the whole world. Um, and then I imagine there's also incredibly high barriers to entry for not only like capital wise, like it's expensive to compete at that scale, but also it, just technical expertise. Uh, low lights for me though is customer concentration. And I know this isn't really up to them because Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor are so big in their own right. And they are, uh, they have demand from the end customer. So it's not really entirely up to them, but uh, 35% of their sales in 2021 came from those two companies. And given some of the tension in China and Taiwan, there could be some adverse effect potentially uh, it, there's just risk, I think, involved in having that much of your sales come from a company. I think Taiwan Semi was about 15%. So if there's anything that goes wrong over there or the geopolitical problems, that that could be a risk uh, as a shareholder. Yep. And they also have, uh, they also sell into China, um, not not just Taiwan Semi. So it's that, that's a big risk as well. We've seen what happens. Um, you know, everyone's theorizing it right now, you know, with the Russia sanctions um, that that potentially could happen to China, that could hurt apply materials. But if you want to flip that to optimistically, if things get, and I don't want to say like destroyed or anything like that, but if stuff comes offline in Taiwan, um, they're going to have to rebuild in other countries. And, you know, applied materials is might have some more demand there. So I think maybe the, the flip side of that could be a benefit, but definitely, I mean, in the short run, it would be really, really bad for them. Um, all right. My highlights, I mean, strong competitive position, I think both from there's like, uh, there's not a, well, there's a switching cost when you have them installed, but there's a switching cost in the form of if you have some little upstart startup coming in and trying to sell kind of the same sort of thing to Taiwan semi one, you don't have nearly the scale to compete with applied materials. I mean, if you're going to, you can't manufacture, uh, like, I mean, what are you going to do? Get a loan. Maybe you could get a loan from Taiwan semi, but like, I mean, it would be very hard to actually fulfill the demand from Taiwan Semi, Intel, and Samsung unless you're at the scale of applied materials. And I also think the R&D advantage is really the key here, where they're spending $2.5 billion a year that raises each year, rises each year. It's also accumulated or, uh, well, why am I missing the word? Caggered? Uh, uh, compounded. Gosh, why can't I have an investor? I can't think of the word compounded. It's compounded over the last 50 years. And there's not really many companies. I mean, even the manufacturers said, we know how to manufacture chips really well. We can't do this as well as applied materials. We're going to have to outsource this type of stuff to you, ASML, LAM Research, Tokyo Electron, whoever. Um, 
seeing that that happened, it's hard to, I mean, who could really disrupt them? It's hard to tell. Um, great end market growth, like you guys were talking about. One thing I should mention though, is machine learning and cloud. Those should also benefit as well. So you have AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, and then some of the other smaller ones like Oracle and IBM to build out the cloud infrastructure that requires a lot of chips. Um, so that's another thing. If you continue, if you believe in the growth of the cloud, that should be demand for semiconductors as well. And the machine learning type stuff that requires a lot of computing, which again, semiconductors, um, the low lights, I have no really good reading into the semiconductor cycle, if and when it's going to end, and then geopolitical risks, like you guys mentioned. But let's move on to bull case. Ian, what are what do you think could go well from here? How could it do well? Yeah, my bull case is that it's got a current 5.5% cash flow yield. Um, if it can maintain its free cash flow generation, and then, then in the worst case scenario, it's going to return significant amounts of cash flow investors through buybacks and its small dividends which it seems very willing to do. Um, and if it can actually grow free cash flow at 5% a year because of some of these growth factors that we've talked about, and it maintains its current multiple, then we're looking at probably low double-digit returns per year for the next five years. So I think there's a little bit of a margin of safety here. Um, uh, that's a little bit debatable based on the cyclicality of the, of the market, but, um, but it's, I think it's got some upside potential too. Yeah, I, my bull case is almost like I almost turned my bull case into a bear case here, but I don't think a lot needs to go right for this to be a good investment. They returned $2 billion to shareholders last quarter. Um, there might be some seasonality, but if you annualize that, that's about a 7% shareholder yield uh, between repurchases and dividends. So assuming that after five, if five years from now, revenue hasn't grown at all, this still wouldn't be a bad investment um, Give if they kept up that 7% shareholder return. Um, and then I, I guess in terms of like a rosier assumption, if the end, if they see growth like they did in 2020 or 2021, um, or even like the first quarter growth, if, if they see that over the coming quarters, this could certainly beat the market um, or at least provide double digit returns. Yeah. And I think one thing to note is 2020 was a down year. So you know, whatever the growth was in 2021 likely won't be repeated. Um, but I mean, but, still 10% yeah. growth would be Q, fantastic. I mean, Q1, they, they, I think having a, uh, last year's numbers are tough comps and in Q1, they showed, uh, an ability to beat it again. So if that, if that persists, this, this will be a good investment for sure. True. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, my bull case, very similar to you guys is end market steadily grows. They can retire 5% of shares a year at these prices. And if the stock goes up and they're not really in a position to retire 5% of shares a year, well, you're going to do well as an investor anyways, uh, because of the multiple expansion. And if their end market continually grows, uh, you know, some years might be bad. I mean, you know, sometimes there's down years in semiconductors, but I mean, over the long term, if the end market steadily grows, they retire a lot of stock, pay out your dividend, uh, free cash flow per share can compound at 12% to 15% over the next decade. And I should note that their semiconductor systems segment, which is growing the quickest, and that's where they're serving the foundries, like we mentioned before, or the manufacturers, Intel, Samsung, TSMC, um, that has higher margins. I believe operating margin is 39% there compared to the uh, display systems one, which is closer. I, I think it's below 30%. So if that continues to take more share of the business, 
margin should expand and hopefully grow at a quicker rate than revenue. Um, but yeah, let's move on to bear case. It's hard because we don't know the industry that well, but Ian, what do you think you go wrong here? Yeah, so I think there's cyclicality risk is I think your guys are going to get into. But I'd say the other bear case is that um, that there's some technological change and that they don't stay on the cutting edge of the best um, manufacturing equipment. And so they kind of, they get supplanted by one of their competitors. Um, and, you know, revenue and free cash flow start declining. It gets re-rated and they, uh, this becomes a, a loser in the next couple of years because they're just not able to continue to be on the cutting edge as they have been for the last 10 years. Yeah. One thing uh, I'll mention there, ASML has been a really great performer. I think a lot of people know about that stock now just because of how important it is to the supply chains and people have talked about that. Um, They're not as old as applied materials and they really came out to dominate the, uh, what is it? EUV lithography. Uh, I'm going to get some of the terms wrong. So if you're an expert on this stuff, go ahead and laugh. But like they, that's something applied materials could have gone after. They definitely lost, or maybe they didn't try to go after them that space. But if you see ASML's market value, they create a lot of shareholder value by dominating lithography. And there could be some next gen thing, like Ian has mentioned, if applied materials doesn't capture that, that could be a lot of shareholder value lost. Maybe their existing stuff will still make it, you know, a good margin of safety, but there is that threat. All right, Ryan, sorry. What are your thoughts? Uh, the, the bear cases that we're at, um, like a cyclical peak for semiconductors. I don't really think that's the case, but obviously if it were, the cash that the company could return to shareholders would be diminished. Um, I do think a more pressing risk is that the supply chain problems actually get worse. If if that happens, I applied materials is going to have a hard time meeting demand. I mean, it's like it's the supply chain seems to be a problem for every company in the world right now. Um, but it, it would definitely affect applied materials. The one thing I like about researching this company is I have a very good understanding now, like of the, all the stakeholders or all the groups in the value chain and where applied material sits. But it's like, there's so much of their business that isn't up to them. And it's just like sort of, the byproduct of either end consumer demand or supply supply costs. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's kind of fun to research. I think the bear case is pretty limited here unless we're at some sort of cyclical peak. But if you look out, like if you take a decades long time horizon, I have a hard time seeing this being a bad investment. Yeah, that's that's me too. The big ones are geopolitical risk. I mean, uh, the really big downside scenario is China um, and U.S. get very adversarial and say the U.S. bans them from doing business in China or something like that. TSMC, we've talked about that. But yeah, I think for me, the big concern is you get a giant bullwhip effect. And the bullwhip effect is just when supply and demand, uh, if there's shocks in that, sometimes things can go really far in, the other, in one direction. And it's not actually um, going into the direction of what end demand is. It's just like what all the stakeholders are thinking. So you could have, say, supply, like there's the supply chain or the idea that there's a huge supply chain, like um, what am I missing right now? Like supply chain is really hammered right now, right? And people think there's a huge demand for semiconductors that we can't fill. But what if people are just double ordering all that good stuff and 
all these companies are trying to just stockpile as many semiconductors as possible. If we get to the end of that, there can be the bullwhip effect where demand falls off a cliff. I, that's just sitting in the back of my mind for a company like this. And it really makes it, it makes it tough. And that, that, that is the bear case. I have no idea how likely that is. And if you have a more than a three to four year time horizon, you're probably safe. But again, in the short run, that, that's just a big bear case. All right. More or less interested in final thoughts here. Yeah, I'm more interested, um, which kind of surprised me when I first started looking at this company, just because I thought it was going to be too far outside of my circle of competence to even kind of get interested in. But like Ryan, I kind of enjoyed learning about some of the different players in the industry and how kind of how they all fit together. And it's one that I want to look more into. I think there's two things that make me more interested. One is I think the valuations at a reasonable spot right now. Um, I think that, and I think especially with the cyclicality, um, isn't as big of a concern as we think as it seems like the market thinks it is. Um, and I think as you guys just noted in your bear cases, I think there's a potential here, even if we are at the peak of the semiconductor cycle, um, the secular tailwinds seem to be such that the peaks keep getting higher and higher in these cycles. And so even if you buy at the peak today, you're not going to get as good returns as you could if you bought at a trough, but by buying at a peak, um, it doesn't seem like you're, it's a death knell for your, your investment. It seems like if you're willing to have a long time horizon um, that you'll see another peak in the future. So um, it's interesting to me. I want to kind of look more into it, um, but still a lot of research to do to probably get comfortable with it. Yeah, it it is definitely interesting as an investor. I'm still like miles away from ever taking a big position in something like this. Um, just due to it not being my competency at all. Um, but it's like for individual investors, I really recommend doing this occasionally, like just taking a look at a business that's kind of been intimidating to you, something that is outside your circle of competence, just so you can learn. I Like it's going to make you a better investor and it's going to make you understand how the world works a little bit more. Um, and I kind of got that out of this, but as an investor, yeah, it's going to take me a long time before I consider taking a position. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a similar boat, more interested. It's going on the watch list. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's hard to understand the industry and with an industry that either, I think I have less of a line of sight, I guess, into what, you know, I mean, we, we, we don't try to predict what things are going to be like 10 years from now, unless it's some really basic trend going on in the world, like demographics or something. But even like three to five years out, like if there's this unpredictability and if the business is hard to understand, I, I, I want a heavy discount for that uncertainty. So like the valuation needs to be very, very attractive for something that is very uncertain. Now, I don't need the valuation could be very attractive if you look 10 years from now for applied materials, but that, I mean, I'm very, like, I'm interested in this company. It's going on the watch list, but it's one of those that's just difficult to understand. Um, but I think that's going to do it. Stock for next week. It's Ryan's turn. Ryan, what do you got for us? Yeah, this one is maybe a little easier to understand. We're going with Zoom video communication. So uh, it's a tool we're using right now. Uh, and yeah, it, it's had probably one of the wildest rides for a stock maybe ever. And so it's not to be confused with the Zoom uh, Z-O-O-M ticker. A lot of people made that mistake at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, this is Z-M. 
the uh, video software. So yeah, and out. there's and there's Zoom info, which is also there's too many Zooms out there, and they all have the Z ticker. But yeah, that should be fun. Valuation's gotten uh, very pe- people are very pessimistic, so it'll be fun to relook at that. Um, it's, it's been a few years. Yeah, it's down more than seventy five percent from its highs this year. So should all right. look at. Oh, whoa, only, never mind. Almost ninety percent. Yeah, I was gonna say if it's down eighty percent, only half, only fifty percent more, we're down ninety percent. But that's gonna do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, give us a review or rating, review on iTunes, rating on Spotify. We're very close to hundred ratings on Spotify, so I think once we get there, we'll stop hammering it on every episode and only do it a few times. But remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. However, Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 